I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which deconstructs genre and narrative and finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. Slavery was a vast and varied institution that changed over time. So I think we could do better even dramatizing those relations of slavery by imagining a, a wider world of extreme inequality. Often relegated to the history books, and sometimes not included in them at all, people often see slavery as something consigned to the past. Films like 12 Years a Slave and Gladiator highlight our simplistic view of what slavery is or was, purely focusing on the story of master and slave. In schools, we teach history and we learn about the past so that hopefully we don't doom ourselves to repeat the same mistakes. But when we stop telling the whole truth of our history, even in fiction, we lose sight of how we got to where we are. Our guest today, Professor Vincent Brown, is unearthing a truth that seems we have forgotten. Vincent is Charles Warren Professor of American History and Professor of African and African American Studies at Harvard University. His new book, Tacky's Revolt, The Story of an Atlantic Slave War, is an account of the largest slave revolt in the 18th century, an uprising that laid bare the interconnectedness of Europe, Africa, and America. It shook the foundations of empire and reshaped ideas of race and popular belonging. The revolt may be centuries old, but what it represents has particular relevance right now. Chapter 1. A State of War Sometimes, as writers, we can get stuck in one location, focusing only on the small world we've created for our characters. But it often pays dividends to consider the global impact and repercussions of the adventure you're crafting. It increases the scope of what you can achieve in your storytelling. It opens up the entire world, offering an endless chasm of options, and it allows you to create something more believable. It's easy to forget how connected everything is, but the history of the slave trade is a prime example. For instance, we can start simply with slavery's connection to war. Well, it's certainly the case that, you know, one of the main ways that people became slaves was to be captured as prisoners of war or be refugees from states that had been engaged in wars and the consequences of wars. So when you think of the famines that followed or the state collapses that followed, right, people would be torn from their networks of kin and protection and then become vulnerable to predation by others, right? And that's how, you know, one person's will becomes subject to another person's will which is fundamentally at the heart of what the enslavement relationship is, right? Which is, you know, the will of one being subject to the will of another. Uh, and slavery is that at its most absolute form. So even now we see that, you know, of the, there I think, tens of millions of people who are enslaved today who live in bondage, those are overwhelmingly the people uh, subject to weak states who may have been at war. If we think of the people who become, who are end up in bondage, um, in the Middle East now, a lot of them come from the Syrian civil war. Uh, if we think of the people who, uh, many, mainly women, who were in bondage in the early 1990s, a lot of them had become uh, vulnerable to bondage because of the collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of those states, right? So, you know, this is a, a long-winded way of saying that if one thinks about disconnection, alienation, from networks of care and protection, you're beginning to understand how it is that people find themselves subject to enslavement. And war is one of the preeminent ways in which 
people get dislocated and removed from those networks of care and connection. Now, by the late 17th century, you have philosophers like John Locke saying, you know, what is slavery? But the state of war continued between a lawful captive and a conqueror. Now, Locke himself is in some ways, despite the fact that he's a philosopher of freedom, is in some ways legitimating slavery politically and saying that slaves are legitimately outside of political community. Now, Locke himself is an investor in the Royal African Company trading for slaves in West Africa. He uh, is fundamental to writing the, the constitution of the colony of South Carolina in America, which becomes a slave state. But this idea is picked up not only by people who want to legitimate slavery, but by people who oppose slavery, like the famous uh, formerly enslaved abolitionist Olauda Equiano, who went by the name Gustavus Vasa, who became one of the most famous abolitionists in late 18th century Britain, arguing for the abolition of the slave trade. But he had also been an enslaved uh, African man. He had also served as um, a sailor aboard a British Royal Navy warship. Um, he had also been involved in expeditions to the North Pole. And Equiano himself said, when you make people slaves, you compel them to live with you in a state of war. And he wasn't speaking metaphorically, and he wasn't speaking to legitimate slavery. He was talking about the kinds of social relations, right, that, that slaves engaged with, with, their masters, with, with, with their masters, which he thought was best characterized as a state of war, a continuous state of war. I've picked up on that in my own work on Tacky's Revolt to see slavery itself as a state of war. And these slave revolts that you see against plantation societies uh, as episodes of that war fought on, on the part of slaves. We tend as writers, when we fictionalize slavery, to focus on that relationship between slave and owner at a, a very low level. It's much wider than that, obviously. Um, what your book seemed to me to be doing is if I, and this is going to sound like a really strange analogy, but if you look at weather maps of certain countries, if they're just talking about the weather in their own country, it's as if the map only references them and their national borders. It doesn't look at the fact that weather doesn't work in a national basis. It's, you know, it's, it's entirely geographic. You're, you're making the same point here on a much broader scale, aren't you? You can't take a national historical view of slavery and understand it properly. You have to understand it geographically. Is that fair? That's absolutely correct. Uh, you mentioned the weather, which I, I, I found funny because, you know, I once had a frustrating experience um, looking at hurricane maps. And uh, there, was a, there was a hurricane, um, a hurricane Sandy, that struck New York several years back. And the New York Times had this fantastic graphic where they showed all of the just damage and destruction that that hurricane wrought on the United States. And it was completely ignored in the map that it had just you know, wreaked even more havoc and killed more people in the Caribbean. And the idea that one could render the path of a hurricane only within national borders seemed utterly absurd to me. Now, we do the same thing with history. We kind of find a container for it, right? A local region, a town, a, a state, uh, a country. Uh, and then we think that history can be reasonably mapped onto just that local region. When in fact, something like transatlantic slavery and slave societies is at least a hemispheric phenomenon, if not a global phenomenon. And I think that it has to be rendered in those terms. 
Now, when we think about how novelists come to that story, part of the problem is that novelists often see their brief as writing about the existential condition of human beings, which often means the individual condition. And so that's why we tend to focus in novels and, and in films as well on that individual relationship between a master and a slave in a local circumstance. And I just felt like one needs to broaden the scope, broaden the framework quite a lot to understand even how those individual circumstances play out. So an example of that is I, I started with a story of uh, a man in West Africa who had been a military official who was treating with the governor of Cape Coast Castle, which was Britain's principal fort on the Gold Coast, roughly the area that's now Ghana. And that governor of Cape Coast Castle retires from his post, eventually sets himself up as a planter in Jamaica. And the West African official is some years later himself captured, enslaved, sold to the Europeans, rewinds up in Jamaica, and he re-encounters that former governor of Cape Coast Castle on his Jamaican plantation. And the former governor entertains that former West African official who's now enslaved on Sundays and insinuates that he'll have him you know, redeemed and sent home to West Africa when his master returns to the island. The master is a Royal Navy ship captain, uh, but that master doesn't return to the island in time before the former governor dies. And then that former West African military official who is now enslaved in Jamaica becomes one of the principal leaders of the largest slave revolt in the 18th century British Empire. Right? This is a story that can't be told on that local canvas. Even to tell the story of the relationships between these three men, the former governor, the former military official, come slave rebel, and the Royal Navy sea captain, we have to stretch their trajectories out onto that hemispheric canvas in order to understand it. And so starting with that story, I decided the entire story of the slave revolt should be told in that way, which required us to broaden the frame. That could be, and I'd be interested to know, I've read a little bit about the reaction to the book, but I'd be interested in, in your reaction to the reaction, if that makes sense. Some of this will be deeply uncomfortable awareness and eye-opening stuff to read for certain people because the reality of slavery geographically is potentially at odds with the views we have of our own nations and, and countries and what it means to be, for example, British or American. And I, I'll, we'll come on to the revisionism that's going on within Britain and the Commonwealth um, in a bit. But it might be strange for Americans to realise the extent to which America was involved on slavery on a global level, almost as if, you know, almost up there with ancient Rome. I mean, it's at that scale, isn't it? Well, when one thinks about the transatlantic slave trade, okay, about 95% of the transatlantic slave trade of kind of enslaved people sold directly to the Americas went to South America and the Caribbean, 5-6% to North America. But what Americans often don't think about is that the British Empire, right, consisted of far more than the 13 North American colonies that became the United States. The British actually had 26 colonies on the eve of the American Revolution in the late in the mid 1770s, and by far the most profitable, uh, most politically and militarily significant of those colonies were the colonies in the Caribbean, which had populations that were 90% enslaved and where most of Britain's slave trade went to. Now that's just the trade itself, right? By the mid 19th century, on the eve of the Civil War, 
the United States had a population of enslaved people about 4 million strong, right? And that does compare to the slave populations of ancient Rome. So even though the slave trade didn't come primarily to North America, slavery as an institution proliferated in the United States to the point where it becomes one of the largest slave societies in the history of the world, even as it's boasting uh, its political freedoms. Chapter two, rewriting the history books. It's often said that history is written by the winners, but more than that, the story of our history and how it's told changes over time. Often huge chunks of less than savoury parts of our past are conveniently left out. So it's no wonder that with glaring omissions and unobvious half-truths, we're left not really knowing anything about our history at all. Can a move towards teaching history on a global scale, rather than a national one, help to fill this knowledge gap? National curriculums are generally focused on nation states, and I'm a historian who thinks that they shouldn't be. Mm. Speaking specifically about the UK, I think that UK institutions used to teach the history of empire and used to teach the history of the world before decolonization. And I have a kind of funny story about this. I, I, used, I do a lot of research in Britain. And uh, in the 1990s, when I was staying there a lot with friends, I remember staying with a friend in East London, a white British guy, college educated guy who was married to a woman from India. And when he found out what I worked on, he asked me, he said, you know, so why is it the Jamaicans speak English? And his wife from India said, colonialism, you bloody idiot. Why the hell do you think I speak English? Okay. But now as a college educated guy, you would think he should have known that. And yet, right, as I said, after decolonization, British institutions stopped teaching the history of Great Britain as the history of empire and started teaching the history of the UK again as this kind of island chain off the European peninsula, right? Little England became the focus of a national history as opposed to an imperial history. And so by the time, you know, these people from the former colonies come to Britain, right, making claims based on that history of empire, a lot of Britons, even educated Britons, were saying, well, what do they have to do with us? Right. And the answer came back, you know, we're here in Britain because you were there colonizing our countries. And yet, you know, people don't are not educated in that larger global imperial history. And it creates significant tensions, right? So the people who don't understand that longer trajectory, that wider history, are confused and oftentimes offended by the kinds of claims people make on British history that they don't recognize, that they don't understand, that they don't see as part of the history of Little England. Now, the same can be said, or something similar can be said of the United States, right? People don't understand what the United States has been doing in Central America and Latin America, what the United States has been doing in the Middle East, what the United States has been doing in Asia for decades and decades and decades. And so they're confused by immigration, they're confused by people who have a different sense of American history abroad than Americans have of their own history at home. And I don't think that a national curriculum focused on what happens within a nation state's borders can really educate people on the history of that nation state. One has to understand the nation state in the world in order to understand how the world comes to the nation state. So there was an issue that came up literally this week in the news here in Britain. I don't know whether it reached you, but there is a regular video conference um, among younger members of Commonwealth nations. And on this week's conference, Prince Harry and Meghan spoke about the need 
for all countries to, quote, acknowledge their past. And it went very high up the, the food chain very quickly. It became a very big news story. And the Secretary General of the Commonwealth, Baroness Scotland, was on the news talking about the 54 Commonwealth nations that grew out of the empire that you talked about. And she said something astonishing. She said, there are 2.6 billion people in the Commonwealth, 60%, 60% of whom are under the age of 30. There is a real need for us to revise the way we teach those people about what happened. And I'm often amused by complaints about particularly Britain, and perhaps not so much now, but, you know, years ago there would be, why is the infrastructure not good enough? Why, why is our welfare state not more developed? And you think, well, if you join the dots, it's because we were too busy propping up the dying empire, right, and we should have been focused here. So you're, you're right, if you do look internationally at that, that 2.6 billion people, 60% of whom are under the age of 30, they don't buy into things in the way that we've been teaching them. So there has to be a need for change. And, and that's exactly what your book is, is, trying, is trying to point out, isn't it? You've got to think differently about issues, not just like slavery, but all issues. Right. I mean, I think the fundamental principle, and it's, it's a geographic one, is one wants to understand what happens in a territory in relation to what happens in the territories to which it's connected. Right. That's that goes for the history that I'm trying to tell. I think that goes for the present. You know, you mentioned just now the resources that went into propping up empire that could have been better spent on infrastructure within Britain or infrastructure within the nation state. One can't understand the troubles that nation states face now without understanding the kinds of obligations and adventures they had abroad. I think the same thing applies in the United States right now. The United States now spends something like $800 billion a year on the military, on military expenditures. And then you look at our response to the global COVID-19 pandemic, and 130,000 plus Americans have been killed just in the first half of this year. And we spent $800 billion a year on the military protecting ourselves. You know, what is, what is the defense budget if not to defend us from something like a global pandemic, right? So the money is completely misspent on our, you know, one might call it our empire abroad and not being spent to protect Americans here at home. And again, the first responsibility of a state should be to protect its own citizens. More Americans have died from the COVID-19 pandemic than have died in all of the wars combined, or at least were killed in combat in all of the wars combined from the Korean War through the present. Chapter three, the role of television and literature. Is where I give you a challenge. Write about slavery, but do it with a new mindset spurred on by the comments of Professor Brown. What we read in books and what we see on screen influences our beliefs about everything. Even works of fiction play a huge part in laying out our understanding of events as they unfolded in the past. It's time to capture a more accurate representation of slavery in fiction and non-fiction alike. Professor Brown is leading the movement, and you could be part of it. It's not just accuracy. It's, it's expanding our imagination to a compass more than what we think of as the archetypal relationship between a master and a slave, right? As you were saying, we've got this idea that slavery can be summarized by antebellum slavery in the United States or slavery in ancient Rome at its peak, when in fact slavery was a vast and varied institution that changed over time. 
So I think we could do better even dramatizing those relations of slavery by imagining a, a wider world of extreme inequality. And at the most extreme end of that is the relationship of slavery. But there's an entire world that encompasses that. That's not just about that one relationship. So slaves do all kinds of work. They work on plantations, yes, but they also work as sailors aboard ships. They also work as domestic laborers. They also work as carters, moving things back and forth. So if one imagines that the legal relationship is absolute, but in fact, people must do all kinds of things and live kind of varied and rich lives, in fact, even as slaves, I think we could have a better sense of how slavery actually worked. And this is a bonus, really, to kind of understand how people survive in conditions of extreme inequality. Because one of the things that happens is one talks about slavery and then sets it off. It's okay, well, we don't have a slave society anymore, therefore that's something distinct. Almost in the way that with the European Holocaust, it's kind of set us off as set off aside as something unique, extreme, distinct, and therefore incomparable to anything else that's ever happened in humankind. What that does is it prevents us from thinking about all of the kinds of global arrangements, political arrangements, relationships that get us to slavery or in the Holocaust. By making it something unique and separable, I think we prevent ourselves from really thinking about it, right? Because it, then it can only shock us and then only can serve as a kind of negative example, as opposed to thinking about, wow, there are lots of things that could lead in that direction or lead away from that direction of extreme inequality, extreme exploitation, murderous politics that are not utterly distinct from the kinds of things we see in our world right now. Right? We should be able to think through those examples, to think about kind of how it is that people live outside of slavery, outside of, of genocide. I spoke to someone the other day who said, um, you know, I said that I was talking to you about this and they, they had no sense of a world before the events described in Hamilton, which I, which I thought was, you know, really, really telling and really interesting. And um, I want to stick with the, with the revolt, Vince, just for a, a bit, because there's something that, that struck me when I was reading about what actually happened. What you effectively had, these, these weren't just laborers. These were highly trained military commanders with, I assume, an innate sense of how combat and conflict works. It's sort of, there is an inevitability about that group of people fighting back on the basis that that is potentially what they are trained to do. And if they think they can win, then they might do that. There's a sense in the aftermath of the revolt that it was the start of something that in the British sense of things was, I really don't think we should be in this business. This is quite a dangerous potential game for us to be. It's interesting that that's not, certainly when I studied, you know, the Seven Years' War, that wasn't, that wasn't in it. And it's clearly a major, you know, a major driver of it. That revolt was difficult for the British, wasn't it, in terms of what it, not necessarily what happened, but what it could represent for the future. Yeah. So I, I want to remind people that, you know, the Seven Years' War, which many people describe as the first European world war, 
was fundamental to reshaping Britain's relationship with its empire and in many ways led indirectly to the split of the first British empire in 1776, right? The creation of the United States. Now, as you say, most historians of the Seven Years' War did not think of Tacky's revolt as being part of it. Again, they thought of it as a slave revolt, something distinct. And yet, so many of the soldiers who fought in some of the best known campaigns of the Seven Years' War in Quebec and in Senegal and in Guadeloupe and Martinique went directly to Jamaica to help suppress this revolt. So in fact, it was one of the larger and more consequential battles of the Seven Years' War. One of the things I'm trying to do in the book is reintegrate that story. The second thing is that, you know, we think of the story of, of abolition, the abolition of the slave trade in 1807, mostly as the story of these evangelical reformers who began to coalesce in the 1780s and argued that the slave trade was immoral and prevailed upon parliament to, to address it, to ban it. That story is true. That is true. And yet, at the outset of that abolition campaign, right, there was also a concern with the danger that slavery posed and the danger that enslaved rebels might pose. And that concern was in part stimulated by Tacky's revolt and the other slave revolts staged by Africans throughout the British Empire and really anywhere you had slavery. I think we haven't thought as much about the, the kind of, you know, almost the anti-immigrant xenophobia represented by by slave revolt, right, in the stimulation of those early anti-slavery efforts. And you found special taxes being passed in the colonies to, uh, to regulate imports of Africans. You found that there were taxes levied on Africans imported from the Caribbean to North America, in part because of that fear of slave revolt. And that was fundamental to the, the, the reason people thought, hey, this isn't such a great business to be in. That takes nothing away from the evangelical reformers of the 1780s and after, but it does flesh out that picture a little bit and add to our geopolitical understanding of, of slave trade abolition. There's a very modern parallel going on in Britain right now. You will have seen, no doubt, the scenes of, um, in certain towns and cities, um, statues that have stood for hundreds of years being torn down either by mob rule or proactively by local councils and authorities sort of reading the room, you know, and and sensing this isn't the kind of business we want to be in. And, you know, we're not only tearing down statues, we're renaming civic institutions, even road names, you know, are all up for grabs now because they represent a time where leading parliamentarians were broadly involved in the slave trade, either directly as slave traders or because they provided ancillary services to traders or because they passed laws that allowed slave trading to continue. That revisionist approach to actually, we don't want this there. There should be a debate about why it was there in the first place. And, you know, we need to work out as a nation what we believe and what we stand for. The danger, of course, of that is that, again, it's a very national view and it's not an international joined up debate. But um, the scenes are quite remarkable um, with these statues being hurled literally into the ocean um, because they are so abhorrent to us um, now. And again, I, I, I kind of keep coming back to that, the, the size of the Commonwealth population that is under the age of 30. I think we're going to see more and more of these attempts to find a new narrative through um, through slavery and what it represents and how it came about. I'd love for that to be reflected in more 
fictionalized um, accounts. But has that reached? Um, that certainly, will probably have reached your uh, your consciousness. What we're doing here in the UK. Oh. Oh, it certainly has. And I mean, it, kind of, the, the images of, of, of people kind of dragging the Edward Colston statue off its plinth in Bristol and, and, and tossing it into the water um, were very dramatic. We have something similar going on with the removal of Confederate statues, con, uh, statues of members of the former Confederacy uh, that fought to preserve slavery. I mean, in their constitution was the idea that, you know, slavery should be forever uh, and rebelled against the United States and created, you know, the Civil War. Um, as a result, and kind of afterwards, almost as a way of kind of healing the breach between the North and the South, uh, people began to erect statues to these Confederate monuments, especially in the South, but not exclusively in the South. I think, you know, the, the issue now, though, is what kind of society we want to be, what kind of values and what kind of people who embody those values do we want to commemorate going forward? And that, to me, is the most important focus. Look, the commemorative landscape changes all of the time, right? Those Confederate statues didn't come out of nowhere. They were erected in part to assert the continuity of white supremacy despite the defeat of, Confe of the Confederacy. The statues to former slave traders who had became philanthropists was meant to assert their beneficence to the British public regardless of where they first derived their profits. Now, we don't think that that's okay anymore. We don't think that that's the kind of thing that could be, should be commemorated in our public landscape. And so we're going to have to have, as you said, a conversation about a new narrative going forward about what values we want to represent collectively, how we want to reflect those to each other, and how our public spaces should reflect those values back at us. And again, that will change in the future. But this is very much a conversation about the present and how we want to commemorate the past in the present for purposes of thinking towards the collective society that we want to build. Vince, books like Turkey's Revolt are, are clearly important. Um, it can't just be your book, though. There has to be many more articles and books and television programs and documentaries made about this issue. It can't be fixed by you and, and one book sat on a shelf, it has to be a global conversation. I agree with you about what kind of society do we want to be and what values do we hold near and dear. So if anything, if, if that is to be the one good thing that does come out of this, I think that will be um, a, a job well done. Um, Professor Vince Brown, thank you very much for being a guest. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much, Mark. This was a fantastic conversation. I appreciate you. Conclusion. A massive thank you then to Professor Brown for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learnt? The history of the slave trade shows that we were somehow able to see slaves as lesser human beings, and that we thought it was our right to own other people. We allowed ourselves to believe that these people didn't deserve the same empathy and respect as we usually afford each other. Use your writing as a tool to highlight the utter ridiculousness of this notion. Writers often see their brief as writing about the existential condition of human beings. This means we can often focus on individuals rather than the wider narrative, broaden your scope, and try and think beyond the local narrative. With that in mind, when we write stories with the same narrow view over and over, even in fiction, we go some way to unhelpfully exacerbating stereotypes and half-truths. Try writing about slavery, but think about it on a global scale. Start telling history as it was, not the way we think it happened. Though what happened in our past can often seem extreme, behaviours we want to distance ourselves from today, obviously. 
they're not entirely distinct from the inequalities we see in our world now. Learn everything you can about the untold past. It will help your craft, and it will also help to put today's issues into perspective. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood. And if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes release weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Up next week is journalist David Patrick Arakos, author of War in 140 Characters, How Social Media is Reshaping Conflict in the 21st Century. Hamas has no chance of militarily defeating Israel. No, Israel has no, is never going to go and wipe out Hamas. It's not going to happen. So what remains to be actually contested, to be actually genuinely contested, the narrative battle. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing.